Kent Hughes captures the reality of the fifth beatitude in a true story. The fifth beatitude, as you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, just in this summer series as we have taken just a little break from the Gospel of John. I'll pick that up in the fall. We'll get back into John 10 on the Good Shepherd. But we've been studying the Beatitudes, and so many of you have been encouraged by them, and it's a blessing to to my heart. But we come to that one in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Kent Hughes tells this true story. He said, years ago in a small town, a merchant had identical twin boys who were inseparable. When their father died, they took over the family business and their relationship was considered a model of creative collaboration. And because he was busy, one of the brothers neglected to ring up a sale and absentmindedly left a dollar bill on top of the cash register while he went to the front of the store to wait on another customer. Remembering the dollar, he returned, uh, it says, to deposit it, only to find the bill was gone. He asked his brother if he had seen it, but the brother said he had not. An hour later, he asked his brother again, but this time with an obvious note of suspicion. And the other brother, the twin, became angry. He became defensive, and every time they tried to discuss the matter, the conflict grew worse culminating in, a vicious, in vicious charges and countercharges, And the incredible outcome was the dissolution of their partnership and the installation, if you can imagine this, of a partition right down the middle of the store and two competing businesses between brother to brother right in that small town. And that continued for 20 years, just over $1. Well, one day... A well-dressed man entered into the brother's shop and he asked how long the store had been there. And learning that it had been 20 years, he said, then you are the one with whom I must settle an old score. 20 years ago, I was out of work, this man said, and happened to get, into a, get off a boxcar in your town. I had absolutely no money. I had not eaten for three days. And I was walking down the alley behind your store and I looked and I saw a dollar bill on top of the cash register. Everyone else was in the front of the store. I had been raised in a Christian home, and I had never before in all of my life stole anything. But that morning, this, this man said, I was so hungry, and I gave in to the temptation, slipped through the door, and I took that dollar bill. That act has weighed on my conscience ever since, and I finally decided that I would never be at peace until I came back and faced up to that old sin and made amends. Would you now let me replace that money and pay you whatever is appropriate for the damages? And when the stranger finished his confession, he was amazed to see the old store owner shaking his head in deep sorrow. And the one of the twin brothers, he began to weep. The man finally gained control and asked, and taking the gentleman by the arm, asked him to go to the store next door and tell its owner the same story. He agreed only this time. The two old men, who looked like they were almost identical, wept side by side. I mean, can you imagine that? Just over a dollar bill, these two brothers, whatever their profession was, we would say at least that their merciless, unforgiving spirits 
revealed that they had never understood the fifth beatitude. The fifth beatitude, as you see it right there in 5-7, is Jesus pronounced a blessing on those who are merciful. And the text says there in 7, for they, and it actually reads, they and they alone shall receive mercy. Now, as we walk into these beatitudes, as we walk into this beatitude of being merciful, if you look back, I just want to touch on this in 417, uh, Jesus, and here the writer Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he began his earthly ministry at the age of around 30, he began to preach. It's always interesting that that's what he did. He was preaching and the message was this, repent, turn from your sin. And here's why. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God is at hand. You'll note down in 423, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, another word for preaching, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so this is what he did when he began his ministry. Look at 425, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And 5.1, seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and in verse 2, he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, here is the manifesto of the king. Here is the king's message. Here is the king's declaration. And he begins here in the Sermon on the Mount. We call it a sermon because... He was preaching in those areas. We call it Sermon on the Mount because it says in 5.1 that he was on the mountain. And we call it the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes in the Latin, it just simply means blessed. And he began to preach and he began to preach a radical message. And we've looked at the first four Beatitudes. He said it's only to those who are poor in spirit that belongs the kingdom of God. He said blessed are those who mourn they shall be comforted by God. He said those who are meek, not the strong, but the meek and the gentle, they inherit the earth. And last week we said those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are blessed because they're the ones that are satisfied. Well, this morning the question on merciful. And I'd ask you this question, are you merciful? I mean, obviously if this is the message of the king, then we're called to live as his subjects underneath his role, and he tells us to live in a merciful way. Now, there might be just a little twist here. I don't know if it's a twist, but a little distinction made in the text. The first four Beatitudes that we've looked at, I think, describe, for the most part, the condition of our hearts before God. We ought to be poor in spirit. We ought to be dependent on him. We need to be mourning over our sin. We need to be meek before Him. We need to hunger and thirst after Him. Those four describe the condition of our hearts before God. It would seem like that the next four Beatitudes describe the fruit and the result of that heart for God. So here are the effects of a soul filled with God. And one of those effects is that you and I should be merciful. So here the man or woman, this is what the text is saying, that displays mercy will not only be blessed by God, the ideal is approved by God, will not only be happy, if you will, 
but they will also receive mercy from God himself. Now, certainly when you think of that theme, mercy, that is a biblical concept. And the supreme example of God's mercy is the sending of his son into the world. I mean, the truth is he saw our pitiable state, if you will. He saw our miserable condition and he reached down in our life and he saved us. Of course, when we talk about mercy, we understand that mercy is a characteristic of God. It is an attribute of God. We call that a perfection of God. When we think of who is God, certainly he is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. Here he is also a God of forgiveness. And so in spite of our rebellion, mercy, if you will, moved him into action. You say, what is mercy? Um, Well, mercy is compassion. It's a way to describe it. To those who are in a miserable condition, he comes to us. And mercy, as we understand from Scripture, is always undeserved. He gives us his compassion. He pulls us out of our situation. He saves us from our sinfulness, and never is it something that we have done. I think you know the Scriptures. Paul said to Titus in 3, 5, that he saved us, not on the basis of works that we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. If you're in Christ, you are a recipient, uh, to say the least, of the mercy of God. You could not correct your situation. You could not even redeem your situation. You had no heart that was even beating towards him. And he came and he made you alive and he made you alive by his grace and here by his mercy. In fact, you remember Paul in Ephesians 2 when he said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath. You were like the rest of mankind. But God, Paul said, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When you think about the character of God, certainly the scripture tells us that he not only has mercy, but he is absolutely rich in mercy. Peter put it this way in, second, in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. If you're here in Christ again this morning, it is by his mercy. In fact, Paul, when he was telling his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, said, formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason. I don't think, beloved, that the Apostle Paul ever got over what God had done for him. He never got over that he was a violent aggressor, that he was a persecutor of the church, that he was encouraging people to murder even Stephen back in the book of Acts. But he said, I received mercy. And I love that little statement when he says, I am the foremost. He wrote Timothy towards the end of his life. He didn't say, I was the chief of sinners. You know that. He said, I am. And he used the present tense. He never got over the fact that he was a wretched sinner. But he said, for this reason, I received mercy. In fact, it goes beyond that. Just to build a little bit of a backdrop for you biblically. It is stated in Scripture over and over that people encountered Christ. And often when they did, they pleaded for mercy. 
In fact, Jesus encountered blind men. You probably remember that along the road. And this was their cry. Have mercy on us, son of David. Of course, they were in a miserable condition at that point. They could not see. They were reduced to begging. And so they cried out to God and they cried out to Jesus for mercy because they wanted to regain their sight. Only Jesus could help them. So they cried for that mercy and he healed them. There was another place in the gospel with a woman who was a Syrophoenician woman. And she pleaded with the Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. In fact, Jesus in that account began to turn away from her. And he said, I was only sent to the lost house of the sheep of Israel. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And do you remember that Syrophoenician woman said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he gladly pulled out that demon, if you will, cast out that demon from that woman's daughter. In each of these instances, these people had no resources at their disposal. In each of those instances, and there's more, they were desperate. And in their cry for help, they cried out for mercy. And when you see that in Scripture, God acted on their behalf. But again, I'm going to ask you just for a second, what is mercy? What is it exactly? What is it that you are to do with this uh, quality, with this beatitude? And I would probably just say, this is what believers do. This is who believers are. They are merciful. The believer then is blessed by God, approved by God, because they have been shown mercy. But what is mercy? What I want to do just in our text is walk you through four principles that allow us to put mercy into action. Okay? Four principles out of the text that allow us to put mercy into action. First, I want you to see the background to mercy. The background to mercy. I think sometimes we just read this text and Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. But I think it's going to help you if you understand the context in which he made that statement. When Christ began his earthly ministry and preached this sermon, the world was obviously at that time dominated by Rome. In fact, as you read in some of the history accounts, uh, mercy was actually a vice. It wasn't loved at all. It wasn't esteemed at all. In fact, there was a Roman philosopher who called mercy, quote, a disease of the soul. That's what they considered mercy. Revenge, on the other hand, was a virtue in Roman thought. Mercy was actually a sign of weakness. In fact, Roman men, actually in this time, assumed the power of life and death over their slaves, over their wives, and over their children. And when you begin to read Roman history, to them sometimes, the men in that culture, killing a slave was no worse than killing a dog. In fact, slaves were killed for such minor offenses as awakening the master from a nap. Truthfully, you can read that. In fact, in that day of abusive power, one wife was actually killed for burning bread. In fact, some of you know this, when a child was born in Rome, the father had the right of what they called patria potestis. If the father wanted his infant child, he held his thumb up. If he did not want his child, 
he held his thumb down and that child was drowned. So listen, when he walks on the scene and he's giving the manifesto of the king and one of these beatitudes was merciful, believe me, that was a shock to them. In fact, it wasn't only the Roman dominance and the Roman philosophy that dominated this civilization at the time of Christ. It was also the Jewish system. The Jewish leadership was harsh. Do you remember when Jesus was speaking to the Jewish leadership and he said in Matthew 23, 23, woe to you scribes. And he pronounced a curse on them. And one of the things that he said to them is you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what were they? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. They neglected, you know, they're straining the gnat, they're swallowing the camel. On the outside, they look good, but inside, they were neglecting mercy and faithfulness. I mean, I think I wouldn't have to go far. You know, even in our own culture, it thrives on revenge. In fact, most of the Hollywood movies are put together in such a way to get a visceral response from you in the particular movie that when revenge is carried out, then justice is done. When I grew up, it was best exemplified in the movie called Dirty Harry. Remember that one? He challenges his assailant, go ahead and make my, what, day. See, you know that, right? But the movie's done in such a way that when he pulls out that forty-four Magnum, you know, it's, it's solved. In fact, I walked in this week into our home and I was thinking about this. Do you remember that movie, The Karate Kid? Remember that movie? And it was on, but I remember in the final match of that karate tournament, uh, Johnny, I think his name was, was told by his sensei to sweep the leg. And, and he looked at his sensei like, I can't sweep the leg. That will hurt him. That's illegal. And then I remember the sensei was like this. He just said, show no mercy, you know. And, you know, and then he went into the famous kick right there. But I think that's our culture. And Obviously, I don't need to say anything about Johnny Rambo taking out all his affliction on people. And when you look at Romans 1, in Romans 1, Paul described the effects of the fall. And he said, filled with covetousness, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders. And it goes all the way to the end. And it says, disobedient to parents, foolish, heartless. And then it says in the ENS, in the ESV, it says ruthless. The NASB uses that term ruthless and says that it's unmerciful. It is part of a fallen culture. And beloved, I just want you to know into this context where the Romans considered mercy a vice, a vice, and the Jewish people and leadership was compassionless, came our precious Lord. Certainly he upset the entire social system by saying, blessed are the merciful. This statement, beloved, is revolutionary. It is a radical statement. It needs to be heard again today. So that's the background. But secondly, second principle, is the meaning. The meaning. What exactly is mercy? When we read from the scripture, blessed are the merciful, let let me get a little closer to what that means to you. I want that to be crystal clear in your mind so that when you walk out these doors you're going to be sensitive to it. It's built off a Greek word. Elias is the, the root word. But the, the, the ending here on this word is very unusual. In fact, it's only used two times in all of the New Testament. It's used once in the book of Hebrews 2, two where it called Christ a merciful, remember that? And faithful high priest. It's used there 
and it's used here. And what, what the word literally means is compassion of the soul. When you think about mercy, you say, well, what is it? Well, it's an element of compassion, and it's a compassion that comes out of the soul. But there's more to it than just that. If I just gave you a working definition of what this means biblically, mercy, beloved, is actually compassion in action, okay? It's compassion in action to those who are in misery. So here's what mercy does. I want to lock that in your mind. It acts to relieve misery. It acts to relieve pain. So I want you to understand this. Let me say it in a contrast. Mercy then is not a feeling primarily. Like if you say, well, what is mercy? Well, it's a feeling. Well, that's not what it is primarily. Mercy, beloved, make sure of this. It goes beyond pity. It goes beyond sympathy. It goes on just compassion. Mercy, again, is compassion and action towards anyone who has a need. And what it does is it relieves suffering. What it does is it relieves misery. Now, I can give you a couple examples to make this become crystal clear to you. We don't have to turn there, but certainly you remember the account of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. The man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I always remember that because Jerusalem is a high, elevated place and it snowed when we were there two years ago. And so here is this man coming from Jerusalem, if you will, lifted up, ascended on that mountain, down into Jericho. And of course, you remember the robbers beat him. They left him half dead. Do you remember that the priest came and the priest walked on the other side? Then the Levite came, saw the man lying in the road and walked on the other side. But then this man, this Samaritan, okay, half Jewish, half Gentile, felt compassion, remember, for this man. He bandaged his wounds. He put him on his horse. He took him to the inn, and he paid for his stay. And you remember Jesus asked this question, and I'll ask you, which of these three proved to be the neighbor? And you remember Jesus said, the one who showed him, here it is, Mercy, the one who showed him mercy. You say, what is mercy? It's compassion, but it's beyond that. It's compassion and action. It's compassion and action to one who is in a miserable or painful condition. That's the meaning of mercy. You say, what's the reward of mercy? Thirdly, okay, here's the reward of mercy. Look at it back in the text. Blessed, approved by God, are the merciful, and here's the reward, for they shall, it says, receive mercy. Here's the reward. Now let me be clear on what this means, okay? Some people think that what this means is if you are merciful to others, they will be merciful to you. They kind of treat it like the, the, the golden rule. If you're kind, they'll be kind. In this case, if you're merciful Others will be merciful to you. And I think that's rather wishful thinking. In other words, the thought would express it to some, mercy given is mercy received. But we would know that it's not that quite, it's not that simple, is it? If you think mercy is always reciprocated, all you have to do is think on the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was there a more merciful human being that ever lived? I mean, when you think about the life of Christ, he healed the sick, he made the blind see. 
He touched the leper. He raised the dead. He reached out to those who were outcast. He reached out to prostitutes. He sat and dined with tax collectors and sinners. He gathered children into his arms. Never was there a person on the face of the earth with more mercy than our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet despite, if you will, his display of mercy, people screamed for his blood. They crucified him. They beat him. They cursed at him. He received no mercy from those whom he actually extended mercy to. So this beatitude, I want to be clear, doesn't teach that mercy to men brings mercy from men. Make sure you understand this. It teaches that mercy to men brings mercy from God. In other words, if we're merciful to others, God will be merciful to us whether men are or not, okay? In fact, it's, it's kind of obviously, when you glance down in your Bible, God is always the subject of the second clause. It is God who gives the kingdom of heaven to those who are poor in spirit. It is God who comforts those who are actually mourning. It is God who rewards the meek with the earth. It is God who satisfies those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and those who receive or show mercy actually receive mercy from God. So here seems to be the principle, beloved, and I'm working towards a conclusion here. As you give mercy to others, what do you say, mercy? As you give compassion and action, you do something about it, okay? It's an action, you'll receive mercy from God. So only the merciful receive mercy. I just have to stop there and just present a little bit of a dilemma. It presents us with a challenge. Does Jesus mean that we will receive mercy only if we ourselves show mercy? I would have to say certainly that is his meaning. Blessed are the merciful, and when you're merciful, you shall receive mercy. However, I want to make this distinction. It does not teach that the cause of our receiving mercy will be the fact that we were merciful, as though in some way we've earned God's mercy, that somehow God's mercy is actually contingent on our mercy. Listen, beloved, he's not presenting here a spiritual ladder to activate our salvation, but rather he is demonstrating the characteristics of the kingdom life that reveal the fruit of faith that we possess. What this beatitude teaches is that as God's children, as objects of his mercy, we are to be merciful because it is evidence that we have received mercy ourselves. Okay? That's what he's getting at. Your demonstration of mercy to others is not the cause of God's mercy to you. It is the result of his mercy to you. And so I just want to be clear, it's not by acts of mercy that we become believers, but rather by acts of mercy, we demonstrate the fruit of the one who has already been transformed by God's mercy. Now, I I want to say a word here. What what do you mean this on the reward? Is it just something future? Look at it in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall, and it's put in future tense, but I don't think it's just future. Certainly it is future when we recognize and realize our ultimate salvation. I also believe it's now. In fact, David read from the scripture earlier, Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and what? 
mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. When you come to Christ, He rewards you. When you come to Christ, when you bow your knee, when you come into a saving relationship with Him, His goodness follows you. His mercy follows you all the days of your life. That scripture, remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the Father of mercies. Why? Because He's the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So His mercy is following us. He's the Father of mercy. He comforts us in our affliction. You have statements like this in Proverbs eleven twenty five that whoever brings blessing will be enriched and, who, and, the, and one who waters himself will be watered. Just a biblical principle. When you show mercy, you receive mercy from God. Whoever in, saw, in Proverbs 19 is generous to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And so here's just an expression of the believer who's been touched by God's mercy, is the giver of mercy, and as you give that mercy, He rewards you back with more mercy. But here's the question, how do I put that mercy into action? That is the fourth principle here, the practice of mercy, okay? I mean, the man and woman who has experienced mercy cannot help but display the fruit of that mercy to others. So listen, I'm not just talking to a few of you. If you're in here and you're a high school student and you're the recipient of mercy, you need to be putting it into practice. You need to feel as though, Paul, that God saved you and had mercy on you, and you need to put that into practice to others. The Samaritan's act of mercy showed that he loved his neighbor as himself, and he proved to be a lover of God, and he proved to be a lover of man because of his action. In fact, the good Samaritan, would you agree with me, had an eye for distress He had a heart for pity. He had an effort to help even what was considered an enemy. That's mercy in action. In fact, I always think it's a little bit fascinating. Do you remember the priest walked by? Never helped him. Then the Levite walked by him. In fact, what's interesting about that, the priest and the Levite are today known as the pastor and the music of worship pastor, okay? They didn't do anything for him. And I think it's a little bit of a warning to any staff or full-time people to not leave people half dead in the road. We never need to gain a, we need to get rid of any kind of a cold heart. In fact, if we remain indifferent to human misery, we need to look in and actually see if we're really believers. Do you remember when John said in 1 John 3, he said, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So very well, how do you put that into practice? Let me just give you three ways to put that into practice. I don't know if I could say everything, but let me just touch on this. You say, I want to be merciful. I I, want to live this quality out. I want to put compassion in action. Well, to you, to me, number one, you can do that by meeting a physical need. I think that's certainly in the text. Not the only thing, but you can do that by meeting a physical need. You can give aid to one who is in need. You can actually help a family in need. You can put clothes on people's back. You can put, give them a situation where they can live. There's actually many ways you can do this. In fact, the Old Testament is loaded 
with ways that we can show mercy, meeting needs of all kinds. I mean, I'm just, and listen, you're walking by and I'm interacting with people all the time. And there's needs, whether they're physical, spiritual, whatever. But I'm thinking of James 2.15. If a brother or a sister is, clo- is, is poorly clothed and they lack daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, James actually says, what good is that? In other words, if you're coming across people and there's a need and you're just telling people to be warm and be filled and be blessed, but you don't do anything for them to help their body, James says, what, what use is that? What, what good is that? In fact, you remember in the book of James at the end of chapter 1, he said that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress or orphans and widows in their distress or in their affliction. We have some of those in our flock. Obviously. We have families that adopt. Obviously, right? And, and I think he's just saying one of the things you can say, listen, if you got true religion, here's true religion. Hold your tongue. And true religion that's pure before God, that's undefiled before the Father is this. Doesn't sound very spiritual, but it's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. In other words, you have a heart for them. You're moved towards them. You have compassion for them. And if you're not a family that's going to adopt, foster, adopt, then you love those families that do. You might not be in a situation where you can do that physically, financially, multiple reasons. But there's families in our church that have done this. And when you show them love and when you show them mercy, when you put compassion into action in some tangible way to meet a physical need, you are carrying out the mandate of Scripture. In other words, this, this is just so practical. Approved and blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, when you're merciful, God's going to double down on His mercy back to you because you're using that compassion in action. Do you remember, certainly in Matthew 25, I was hungry. And it says there, at least the negative side, you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then the positive on the other side of that. But here, remember our Lord said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it what? Unto me. How, how merciful are you? Could you imagine if our church was filled with mercy? Hey, listen, just to encourage you, when you watch the Albania video, listen, you not only sent our team, I think this is fair to say, every kid that's come to Christ is at camp because of the gifts to our people. I don't mind telling you that. When our people, our 18, are raising their support, they're raising their support to go and minister, but they're also providing a way for those Albanians to go. Believe me, those Albanians could never pay for that. It is one of the poorest countries in all of Eastern Europe. But when you give to our people, our 18, and all those needs were met, you're making an opportunity to put compassion in action to some of those children who have never heard the gospel. And I just want to encourage you with that. We forget that sometimes. 
We're supporting Christine and Corey. We're supporting Arione and Melody. We're supporting our missionaries. All that you give in into the offering is dispersed to the, our six missionaries. And part of that is compassion and action. I still remember the time when Shannon came in Uganda and he was riding in his car and somebody was on a motorcycle and he saw a bunch of commotion over on the side. And he wasn't sure what happened, but a guy was on a, on a motorcycle and he got in a horrible accident and the guy's leg was virtually cut off. And so, you know, Shannon's going to get there. He's going to pick that guy up. He put him in the back of a, a Jeep. He rushed him off to the hospital. And sure enough, the guy lost his leg for sure, but he didn't lose his life. He became a Christian through that. And then Shannon began the effort to get this guy, you know, a leg attachment. And he did. And I met that guy. But you never know how the Lord's going to use you. But I just think sometimes we walk by people all the time. There are families in our church that have needs. And I want to say thank you for many of you who have reached out to them. But could you imagine what our church would be like if all of us in this room could put compassion into action and where there's a need, we met that need? You don't have to call me necessarily or our elder board. I suppose you can inform us of something. But it could be that the Lord brings the need to you and he just wants you to meet it. Listen, Jesus is saying, listen, this is what it means to be merciful, is to put this compassion into action. In fact, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, here's what he charged the rich. He said, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And he said to the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. So listen, you can meet that need practically, number one, by meeting a physical need. Secondly, a little bit more removed, but by seeing the lost with Christ's eyes, okay? This isn't so tangible, so fit it in where you think it would come into your life. But seeing the lost with Christ's eyes, in other words, he dined, is what I'm trying to say, with tax gatherers and sinners. And when he did that, the Pharisees were stunned. And they basically said to him, why does Jesus even eat with such trash? And you remember Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then earlier in that chapter, he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus Christ desires mercy, not sacrifice. He wants us to see people the way that he sees people. In fact, when he saw the crowd in 936, he had compassion on them. Now, that word compassion is an interesting one. You say, Scott, what's the difference in Matthew? You see it there, compassion for them. Well, the the word for compassion, you don't need to know this, but it's the Greek word. I'll just tell you what it means. It's called splonkna. It's kind of hard to say. But the word compassion has to do with a, a feeling in the gut. So, in other words, when it says that when he saw the crowds, he, he was moved inside, internally. In other words, that's what it means. It means to have a visceral effect inside your body. In other words, as he's walking about, he saw the crowds. What do you see at the school in which you serve at, at which you attend? Well, listen, he's just walking around in the crowds. He felt compassion for them. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here's how I make the distinction. Compassion is what you feel, literally is what it means, but mercy is to do something about it. Mercy is to put compassion into action. 
In fact, that's exactly what it means. Now listen, part of this compassion, I should say, is also confronting someone close to you who is in sin. I don't think mercy is just being Mr. or Mrs. Milktoast. You could actually see someone in danger. You could actually see someone in great danger of sin, and you're going to point out their destructive path they are following. I think Thomas Watson, the Puritan, called this soul mercy. I mean, beloved, if you know people in our flock that are in sin, if you know people in our flock that are in a wrong relationship, it's cruel to say nothing to them. It's cruel to let them quietly go to hell. So sometimes mercy is moving towards people. In fact, Jude says you save others by snatching them out of the fire. In other words, it's mercy. It's an act of compassion. When you see somebody in sin, it's cruel not to say anything. You save others by snatching them out of the fire. He said to others, you show mercy with fear. So what does that mean? I think he's just describing different types of people in the body of Christ in the book of Jude. In the book of Jude, you remember there were false teachers. And the false teachers were having their day in that flock. And he said to the flock to whom he writes, he said for others, you got to snatch them out of the fire. Listen, beloved, if you saw your neighbor's house on fire, you just wouldn't sit in your house. You would go over there. You would do something. Hopefully you would be compelled to do something. But here spiritually, he says, you got to snatch them out of the fire. He said to others, he said, you show mercy with fear. You say, what's he talking about? I think he's saying there's others who have been influenced by these false teachers. They've not completely gone over the way. And he goes, you need to show mercy to them, be patient with them, but you need to do it with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. James says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Listen, you can meet a physical need, but other times, could you imagine if we walked like Christ and saw what Christ saw? Could you imagine if you begin to engage your fellow teachers at the school you teach at? Could you imagine what would happen if we begin to demonstrate mercy, putting compassion into action in the workplace, on the football field, on the volleyball court? I mean, this church would would be an outstanding church. I always like the story of Gypsy Smith. He didn't, um, he once was walking down the streets of Chicago. He was a famous evangelist many years ago. And he's walking down the streets of Chicago with a Christian businessman. And the businessman saw a drunkard lying in the gutter. And he said, Isn't that disgusting? To which Gypsy Smith said, Oh no, when I see that, I realize that except for the grace of God, that would be me. Listen, that's the kind of compassion that we need to put. And one final one. You know how you can do this? Is you, can, you can show this kind of mercy by forgiving another person. So what do you mean? Well, mercy doesn't hold a grudge. Mercy doesn't harbor a resentment against you. Mercy for a believer, is the ability to forgive someone. Beloved, do you remember when Jesus taught the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18? Remember that? The slave owed his master an immense sum. In today's currency, I mean, it was just dramatic. In today's currency, someone said it would be about about $20 million. In other words, he owed his master $20 million. The debt was impossible to repay. So he began to plead with his master, who, with astonishing compassion, forgave him the entire debt. 
But incredibly, do you remember that? That wicked slave who was forgiven an impossible debt went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him $2,000. And rather than having mercy, it says that he threw him into prison. And when the other slaves reported this injustice to the master, he summoned the slave. And he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all your debts of, because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owned. And Jesus said, this is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. So forgiveness and mercy are linked in scripture. And Jesus, beloved to you, I have no idea all of your life, but he warns you if you're nourishing hatred, if you're cherishing animosity, if you're holding a death grip on a grudge, such a person better take stock of his or her life. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not going to have reoccurring mind battles in forgiving another who have deeply hurt you. The very fact that you continue to battle to continually forgive is probably a sign of God's continuing grace extended to you. But the warning here is to those who have such a deep-seated animosity in their stubbornness and they have no desire to forgive another. Listen, you've, you've got to be merciful in your forgiveness. MacArthur said this, I think true. He said, I'm convinced that multitudes of Christians who suffer from stress, depression, discouragement, relationship problems, and all sorts of hardships experience these things because of a refusal to forgive. He said, forgiveness from the heart would liberate the person immediately from such tortures and glorify God in the process. See, to forgive is to be forgiven. To show mercy is to receive mercy. It is a glory, the Proverbs say, to overlook a transgression. Stephen, in the Old Testament, while they were stoning him, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, of course, in Luke 23, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You're bearing with one another, Colossians says, Whoever hasn't complained against you, forgiving each other. Why? Just as the Lord has forgiven you, says the same thing in the book of Ephesians. Listen, how are you doing with showing mercy? Can you believe at the beginning it was just a buck that separated those identical twins for 20 years? It might be something small and that would be ridiculous. On the other hand, it could be one of the biggest things you've ever faced to be able to forgive someone else for an offense that they have done against you. But listen, I promise you, you've got to be merciful because it says in James 2.13, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You can meet a need. You can see people through the eyes of Christ. And finally, here, you need to forgive someone as they've sinned against you. Would you put that beatitude into practice, beloved, and we'll be a blessed body, we'll be a blessed people by God. God will return that mercy to us as an extension of our fruit, giving back to him, and we'll be a church that loves one another. I mean, just think about how radical this message is today, to be merciful in a vengeful society in which we live.